Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host Howard Sides. Uh, today we're talking, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 14 of the book of Revelation in our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, and we're specifically on verses uh, 17 through 20. Now we've uh, been talking about this third section of uh, chapter 14, this special command in heaven. Uh, which is verses 14 through 20, a special command in heaven. And the uh, first part of that, verses 14 through 16, uh, is concerning the golden harvest. Concerning the golden harvest. Today, verses 17 through 20, is going to be concerning the gory vintage. Uh, the first part represents that uh, reaping of the harvest, the, the how they gathered in the wheat, and the tares and all of that, how they separated the two. Uh, today, it's going to be about the uh, use of this wine press, uh, the wine press. So let's uh, read the scripture and then we'll get into um, today's study. All right. Revelation chapter 14, verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire. And cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs all right so uh this is talking about the wine press side of this and there's two points to uh today's study verses 17 through 19 talks how about how it's very timely and then verse 20 talks about it's very terrible and it is this this is quite some destruction going on here. and again uh let me emphasize that these verses um uh, for this whole uh, point here, verse 14 through 20 is a preclude of a description of the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon. Um, that, that's a phrase that 99% of the people in the world have heard this term. Uh, I'm sure there's a small portion that have not, but most people uh have heard the term armageddon i mean it's it's even used to describe things that we do on earth but let me tell you nothing nothing that's happened on this earth today uh up to this point can can come close to comparing to what the real battle of armageddon is going to be like or the real war there okay um so concerning the gory vintage let's talk about this first point it's very timely uh verse 17 through 19 now verse 17 it says and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Now here we see a second phase or part of this reaping process. Now the first was performed by Christ himself, while this one is carried out by a what is called another or a certain angel who comes out of the temple, suggesting he abides in the very presence of God himself. Uh, verse 18 says, and another angel uh, came out from the altar, which had power over fire. Now, this angel comes out from the altar, not the temple, but the altar. 
Now, there are two altars to recognize. If you know anything about the tabernacle, you know the difference in them. Uh, first is the altar of burnt sacrifice, which sits outside the temple, outside the temple door. And then there's the altar of burnt incense, which sits inside the tabernacle. And, and what the difference is, the one inside the tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle structure itself is divided into two uh, separate sections. There's a larger portion called the holy place. Uh, this is where when you entered the front curtain or the outer door, I guess you'd say, of the tabernacle structure itself, uh, you have the uh, golden candlestick, you have the table of showbread, and in the very back, you'll notice there's this curtain which is hiding another room behind it. And right in front of this curtain is where this altar of burnt incense resides. And what it is in this holy place, there is another portion or smaller section uh, behind that curtain, which is called the Holy of Holies. And that is where the Ark of the Covenant resides. And, and it is where the presence of God is. Now, of course, these priests carrying on these daily operations of, of changing out the bread or lighting the candles or, or refreshing the oil, uh, that sort of thing. They can't have access to the very presence of God. You, holy, a holy God just cannot be in the presence of a sinful man. It, it's, it's instant death for us. Okay, but there had to be a way for uh, man to approach God to confess our sins. And remember, this is before Christ. So man had to have a way. There had to be some kind of bridge. And, and of course, this is all symbolic of what Christ did. But uh, one day out of the year, uh, there were specific herbs, specific spices, and only those that were put on this altar of burnt incense. And this altar would then be pushed under that curtain uh, into that Holy of Holies. And the process, what it would do, was... First of all, the smoke off of the burning of these incense would literally fumigate this entire room, put make this huge smoky cloud in there, all right? And second of all, it had an aroma about it that, that excited God. God liked this scent. It was pleasing to him. And that's why he pointed out only those herbs and spices were to be used. Uh, key here is uh, this smoke-filled room was then uh, able to allow the high priest and only the high priest to enter into the Ark of the Covenant to take the blood that had been shed uh, from the sacrifices on the altar of burnt sacrifice. He would bring it into the tabernacle. Uh, he'd be able to go into this Holy of Holies with all the smoke in there so that he wasn't literally in, in you know, uh, the uncovered holiness of God, which would have killed him. Uh, so he'd take this blood and pour it on this Ark of the Covenant uh, to ask forgiveness of, of the sins of the nation. And this was on the Day of Atonement. That's what it was about. So that, that's the difference here in these altars. Okay, now the altar of burnt sacrifice symbolizes the blood of the martyrs. Revelation chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So not only does God number those who are saved, but also those who are sacrificed. He knows the number of those sacrificed as well. So here this represents presenting the burnt sacrifices of these uh, of the blood of these martyrs. Now, the altar of burnt incense, uh, which is mentioned in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, and verse 5, chapter 9, verse 13, and then in chapter 16, verse 7. Uh, let me go back and hit a point there on the altar of burnt sacrifice. I didn't give you the scripture references that, which I read one. Uh, but the altar of burnt sacrifice is talked about in chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, and then again in chapter 11, verse 1. So that's the altar of burnt sacrifice, if you're making notes of that. Uh, now, forward to the altar of burnt incense. Uh, mentioned in chapter 8, verse 3 and verse 5. Uh, it's mentioned again chapter 9 and verse 13. And again in chapter 16 and verse 7. So, where the altar of burnt sacrifice uh, symbolized the blood of the martyrs, here, the altar of burnt incense symbolizes the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the saints. And we'll read, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 8, uh, verse 3 through 6. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Okay, so there are two different altars. And this altar... Uh, that we're talking about here. Another angel came out of the temple, and then another angel came out from the altar. Which altar is it? It's the altar of incense. This angel, with power over fire, coming forth from this altar, represents the prayers of the saints, rising as an incense up to God's nostrils. And just as the blood of those martyred asked God to judge, so does the prayers of the dead saints, to judge the enemies of God in righteousness rather than revenge. Now, the angel of verse 19 is God's response. And we'll get to that a little bit when we get that far down. Uh, we're still here in verse 18. So this angel uh, came from the altar and said, which had power uh, over fire. Power over fire. Uh, now, of course, fire is the uh, element which consumes. Fire is the element which consumes. And it may be symbolic of one of three things. Uh, God's presence, God's glory, and or God's judgment. Uh, as far as fire representing God's presence, that's Ezekiel chapter, Ezekiel, listen, Exodus, sorry about that, Exodus chapter 3, 
and verse 2. Uh, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Fire also uh, uh, is symbolic of God's glory. Also in the uh, book of Exodus chapter 24 and verse 17, it says, And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. Uh, and then this third one, uh, symbolic of God's judgment. God's judgment. Genesis 19:24 uh, says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Also in the New Testament, uh, we see that in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, where it says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Uh, so that's talking about that fire that it's mentioning here. Uh, the next phrase here, it says, And cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. <clears throat> Uh, Charles Ryrie says, and I quote, The picture here is that all the false religion of man is fully ripe and ready for harvest. Thus the harvest is ready because man in his own efforts apart from the life of God has fully developed in an apostate religious system. End quote. Now when you get to that uh, verse 19, And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of God. Uh, that phrase, the vine of the earth. Vine of the earth. Vine here is the Greek word ampelos. Ampelos. A-M-P-E-L-O-S. Ampelos. Which is not just any vine, but rather one that has coiled about a support and is fully grown and rooted deep in the ground. This This would be like the um uh, uh the main the main trunk of a tree uh when you think of a vine you've got the different arms that come off which which the grape clusters are and and when you reap grapes you you don't cut the whole plant you, you're cutting the fruit off of the end tips okay here it's it's talking about cutting the entire plant all right uh now, Ampelos represents the enemies of Christ collectively pictured as a whole. So while it's, you know, you're cutting a vine, a vine here and a vine there and a vine there, this, this reaping is, is, is taking them all. This reaping is not leaving any of them behind. It's, it's everything. <clears throat> all right, the phrase, uh, the wrath of God. Now, it is interesting to note uh, that while all of Scripture mentions the wrath of God and the wrath of Satan against Israel during this period, the main focus here is entirely concentrated on the wrath of God. And when speaking of the wrath of God, nothing else compares. Nothing else compares. Um, <clears throat> Joel chapter 3, verse 11 through 14, talks about this. Uh, let me make a note here. <clears throat> okay. Joel chapter 3, verse 11 through 14. Assemble yourselves, and come all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. 
Thither caused thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Uh, this valley of decision that he's talking about here is this uh, location where Armageddon takes place. Okay, so uh, that is talking about the point very timely, verse 17 through 19. Uh, now let's look at verse 20, and this is where uh, it's the point very terrible. I'm talking about very terrible. Uh, the first phrase there, and the wine press was trodden without the city. Now, wine presses were usually located without or outside is what it means there, uh, the city walls. Uh, William Barclay, in his book, he says, and I quote, the wine press consisted of an upper and a lower trough connected by a channel. The troughs might be hollowed out in the rock or they might be built of brick. The grapes were put into the upper trough, which was on a slightly higher level. They were then trampled with the feet, and the juice flowed down the connecting channel into the lower trough. And I would certainly hope that people washed their feet before they did it. You know they did. <laughs> but just the idea that this came from people's feet, I, that just sits beside me there. <laughs> Woo, okay. A lot of trust going on there. Don't know what's between them toes. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, the reason this takes place outside the city walls is because this is where the cur cursed and unclean things were taken for disposal. Uh, you think of the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, that's one place where things were taken. Now, this is where the Old Testament human sacrifices took place. Uh, it is also where the carpuses... Car carcasses of animals used for burnt sacrifices were burned up into ash um, destroyed um, another thing that was outside the city walls was Golgotha this was the place of Calvary this is where Jesus was crucified now the, G the reason Jesus had to be crucified here was so he could identify with sinful people 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made himself to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All right. Next point. Uh, and blood came out of the winepress. Blood came out of the winepress. This is a reference to the prophecy of Joel, who says the actual battle will take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Valley of Decision. I read part of that <clears throat> a minute ago. Uh, you have to excuse me. My throat's just like locking up on me. I can't even get my voice out today for some reason, but I'm pushing through. Um, I'll read it again and, and use the whole phrase here. Joel chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. I don't think that's what we... Uh, Yeah, anyway, all right, let's read it. 
Joel chapter 2, verses 9 through 16. Uh, Proclaim ye them uh, this among the Gentiles. Prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Be your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither calls they my, thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all of the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. <clears throat> uh, now you'll notice in, in there, it used that phrase, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. And that's explained in uh, the pulpit commentary, and I'll quote, uh, these multitudes are the tumultuous masses. Haman is from the root hama, meaning to be noisy or tumultuous. It is identical, says Pusey, with our hum, then noise, and among others, the hum of a multitude, then a multitude even apart from that noise. It is used of the throng of a large army. The repetition emphasizes the masses as equivalent to nothing but pits or full of ditches, or it expresses diversity equivalent to multitudes of the living and multitudes of the dead. Decision is the uh, Hebrew word charutz, charutz, or cut, something decided. First, so sharp, severe judgment from chafers to cut into sharpen, uh, to cut into, to sharpen, or to dig. Uh, others understand it in the sense of a threshing wain, equivalent to charutz morag, a sharpened threshing instrument. Okay, so what is this valley of Jehoshaphat. Why is it mentioned this guy's name, right? Jehoshaphat. Uh, <clears throat> and it goes back to Second Chronicles chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 2. It says, And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, there cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazazontamar, which is in Gedi. E N G E D I, in Gedi. Now, this reference of after this also, because you remember the first part said, and it came to pass after this also, what is it talking about? Uh, it's going back to chapter 19. And talking about events that took place there. That's what started this whole thing. 
Uh, it says, And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. And Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again through the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. And behold, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. So, what's going on here? All right, multiple nations had gathered together to battle King Jehoshaphat. Chapter 18 tells us that Jehoshaphat had joined forces with Ahab to fight Syria. And you remember at that time, Israel and Judah were separated. So they were two whole different governmental systems going on and, and two different battles and everything. So here, chapter 18, Jehoshaphat had joined forces with Ahab to fight against this Syria and uh, all these other places. Now, in this battle, Ahab was killed. Now, it's easy to believe that these nations smelled blood and came after Jehoshaphat. I mean, you know, they got rid of one, so the forces are almost seen as being cut in half, right? So, in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 through 4, it says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, again, going back in chapter 19, verse 3, we see that Jehoshaphat's heart was prepared. So he immediately went to the very source of help in the time of trouble. Now, notice God's response to this heartfelt plea for help. Later on in chapter 20, verses 14 through 17. And as I read it, I'm going to point out uh, some things there. And of course, we're back and forth trying to give you the whole history of this whole idea of the Valley of Jehoshaphat and what's going on. All right. So chapter 20, 2 Chronicles 20, verses 14 through 17. It says, uh, Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Beniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, Asaph's name means collector. Came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. So here in referencing Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and King Jehoshaphat, he's hitting it all. First of all, Judah is the land. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are the locals. And King Jehoshaphat is the leader. Okay? So he's drawing the attention of everyone and everything. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed, by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them, 
Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz. Z-I-Z. Um, and in the Hebrew, that's T-S-I. Oh, boy, here we go. T-S-I-Y-T-S, -S, which is the Hebrew word, which means a bright-colored bloom. So it's the cliff of the bright-colored bloom. Uh, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Jeruel uh, means founded of God. So it's before the wilderness of the place where it was founded of God. Uh, in verse 17, ye shall not, yeah, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Now there's two places in the Bible where God tells his people that are facing a massive army of foes <coughs> excuse me and he tells them to stand still now the first reference is one that's well known of course that was when uh, Egypt had let Israel who were in bondage they let them go after all those plagues had taken place right and <clears throat> they'd gotten away they'd gone a good deal a distance away and then Pharaoh had to change the heart so he gathers his entire army, the entire Egyptian army, okay? Now, now you got to picture this in your mind. Here's a professional, battle-hardened, uh, war-honed military might going after a union of, or uh, a, a country of slaves. They have nothing. The only thing they have with them are gifts that had been given them by their owners in Egypt that just God laid it on their heart to give them these things. That's how they were able to make this tabernacle out of gold and silver and all that. It was gifts that had been given to them by these Egyptians. But as far, think about it, as far as weapons of war, I mean, they didn't have any. Did they have horses? Uh, if they did, it were very few. Chariots, if they did, very few. Um, swords and things of that nature, if they did, again, very few. So you've got the best of the best going up against the worst of the worst. And Moses prayed and says, uh, Lord, we're freaking out. What are we supposed to do? That's not really literally what he said, but you know, I'm just using paraphrasing here. And God says, I'll tell you what, you tell the people to stand still. And Moses said, uh, excuse me, come again. Um, <laughs> surely you want us to do something. And God says, no, this is not your fight. This is my fight. You stand still, and he doesn't tell them to just stand still, but there's another part of that phrase, and it's mentioned in both places. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. If you're not standing still, you won't see the salvation of the Lord. That's the key. God's telling them, hey, the battle is mine. I'm going to fight it, but you must be standing still to see. So God had told them the very same thing here in the book of Chronicles, that he had told Moses and the Israelites when Pharaoh and Egypt were bearing down on them. <clears throat> and notice by, by where they are. Now remember <clears throat> that they uh, are to come by the cliff of Z's, that bright colored bloom, 
found at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel, found it a god. So notice that God tells them they will stick out like a bright colored flower in the middle of a desert wilderness, prepared by God for this very reason and purpose. These people are in the exact right spot at the exact right time in the exact right position that God had put them in. God is in total control of all. So the very name Jeruel of that wilderness means founded by God. And it tells us that he made the place and he knows exactly where they will be. Okay, so we've built it all up. Now, how does the battle come out? Uh, further down in chapter 20, and again, this is an interesting story in the Bible. It's a great story. Uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 22 to 23 says, And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every one helped to destroy another. So what it's saying there is we see the battle plans that took place in Gideon's day when God fought the Midianites. You remember what he told Gideon in that time? If you don't know the story, interesting how all this fits in, is that Gideon uh, was a chicken. He was a coward. Um, he is found in the book of Judges. And, and when we're introduced to Gideon, it says that he's down in the valley uh, threshing wheat. Now, if you don't know what, anything about threshing, you don't know what the irony of this story is. Now, threshing wheat means when you cut wheat down, of course, it's got the tares in it, the, the weeds in it as well. So to separate the two, uh, wheat has the, the hardy uh, 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 kernels on the inside, which gives it a little weight. Tares are an empty shell, so they're much lighter. Now, the way to separate the two was you would take these bundles up on the top of a mount or a hill where the wind was blowing, and you'd simply throw it up in the air. And what would happen is that the heavier, real wheat would fall back to the ground, while the wind would catch the tares and blow it away. But here, Gideon's down in the valley, hiding. And the reason he's hiding is because there was this battle going on against these Midianites. The Midianites were always waiting till the time of harvest, and when they'd look out there and see them threshing the wheat, they'd run in, beat them up, and take the wheat from them. So the people were starving today. They were living in caves and having a tough time of it. And you think, well, why were they having a tough time of it? Well, it's because they weren't obeying God. They were being hard-headed. Well, the people had had enough. God started listening to some of their earnest prayers for help and so he went looking for a warrior to lead his mighty army and he comes across Gideon 
and and you got to see the sense of humor in all this is when the angel comes forward and speaks to Gideon and he says thou mighty man of valor <laughs> God is poking fun at Gideon because he's not a mighty man of valor he's down in the valley hiding and you can imagine he's throwing his weed up in the air and it's all coming right back down on top of his head you you ever done that I'm, I, you talk about an itchy oh man uncomfortable situation <laughs> so you just have to read between all the, the, the lines there. But what ends up happening is he tells Gideon, hey, <clears throat> I need you to lead an army against the Midianites. And Gideon's like, man, we can't fight. We ain't got... And God says, no, I'm, I'm going to bring together a, a, an army and we're going to defeat them. Or he says, I'm going to defeat them. He says, okay. <clears throat> so he sounds the alarm, says, hey, we need some people together. We're going to fight. We're going to fight back. I've had enough. We're going to do it. So this great multitude shows up. And so Gideon's getting ready to prepare, and God comes forward, and he says, Hey, Gideon. Gideon says, What? Lord says, There's too many here. Gideon says, What? He says, There's too many people. Gideon goes, Are you kidding? I I'm looking for more. And God says, There's too many. And Gideon says, well, What do you want me to do? And he says, Well, we got to put them through a couple of tests. Well, it ends up that one of the tests was uh, as they come to this brook, um, God says, Watch how they drink the water. And, you know, some of them, you know, they're like so thirsty, they just stick their whole head down in the creek and they're drinking water. And the other ones, they go up there and they, they scoop the water up <clears throat> with their hand and bring it to their mouth. And the point is that the ones that stick their head down in the water can't observe what's going on around them. The others that put their hand in the water still have their eyes up. They're looking around and bring the water up to drink to the mouth. God says, those are the ones that I want. And so Gideon goes about the task of culling out these that weren't paying attention and that sort of thing. Ends up, he comes up with 300 men. Only 300 men. So Gideon says, well, uh, I got to think about this. 300 men against an entire army. Uh, God must be planning something big. What 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 is it that I'm missing? What is it? Okay, apparently we're uh, supposed to fight with some pretty great weapons. Got to learn jujitsu, karate, uh, mai tai, and any other kind of form of battle that we can have a an edge. So they go out and he's like, "Okay, let's prepare these weapons." And God says, "Hey, um, Gideon." Gideon says, "What?" Lord says, uh, "They're not going to need all these weapons." And Gideon says, "What?" He said, they're not going to need all this weaponry. He said, well, wait a minute. What, what are we talking about here? He says, here's how we're going to arm this army. And Gideon says, okay. And he's waiting for like, you know, this revelation of some new typical uh, unbelievable weapon. And God says, I want him to hold a trumpet in one hand and a lantern in the other. And Gideon says, come again. God says, I want him to hold a trumpet in one hand and a lantern in the other hand, this is how we're going to beat the Medians. And Gideon says, "Are you crazy?" I, you know, that's what he's thinking. Of course, you don't tell God this. You know, Gideon's like, "This has got to be the craziest idea I've ever heard." So uh, Gideon says, "Okay, God." So, so he does what God says, and they go up in the middle of the night. And any army knows, uh, any battle experience, the best time to attack is early morning. And I'm not talking 8 or 9 o'clock. I'm talking early. I'm talking 2, 3, 
not much later than four o'clock in the morning. And when you attack by surprise at that time, you see the body is in that deep REM sleep state. Your body doesn't come out of that immediately. It, it, it without some training anyway. Uh, it, it's you wake in utter confusion and chaos going on, this sort of thing. And God knew that. <clears throat> Gideon didn't know that. So God tells him, he says, hey, stand up on this mountain. He said, and when I tell you, he said, I'm going to get you to blow the horn and I'm going to get you to, and the lanterns were not like fully lit. They were covered up with the clay jars and this sort of thing. So they were hidden, okay? So there was stealth mode involved. So when they get up there, God tells him, he says, I'm going to get you to blow the trumpet and I'm going to get you to break these glass jars. And Gideon's like, man, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. God says, what? Gideon says, nothing. I, I, I'm, we're here. <laughs> so they go up on this mountain and God gives the order. He says, all right, break break the glass jars and blow the horn. So they do it and they're like, blah. You can imagine this humongous, chaotic noise, right? <clears throat> and what do you know? The Bible says the Midianites come out of the tents and are so confused and so unorganized and panicking so much that they turn on each other and kill themselves. Not like suicide, but like one Midianite kills another Midianite. Okay? And notice here what it said in Second Chronicles 20, verses 22 through 23, knowing that history. And when they began to sing and to praise, there's that noise. The Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. That's the three confederates. Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir which were come against Judah. And they were smitten. They were killed. Verse 23, it explains it. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. They turned on their ally, utterly to slay and destroy them, wiped them completely out. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, every one helped to destroy another. So after they destroyed all the army of Mount Seir, these children of Ammon and Moab turned against each other, started killing each other. Again, it's that confusion. It goes on in verse 26, and it says, uh, And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, Barakah, I don't know, B-E-R-A-C-H-A-H, -H. Uh, for there they blessed the Lord, Therefore, the name of the same place was called the Valley of Barakah unto this day. So, when Joel mentions the Valley of Jehoshaphat and the Valley of Decision, everyone knows he is referring to this particular valley as the same valley. Because they all know this history of what happened. So, where is this Valley of Jehoshaphat? Um, I printed out a map that I use as a reference point. Um, but I'll explain it a little bit to what J. Dwight Pentecost in his book, Things to Come, describes. Uh, and I quote, The hill of Megiddo, or Megiddo, I think it's Megiddo, uh, located west of the Jordan River in north-central Palestine, some 10 miles south of Nazareth, and 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean seacoast, 
was an extended plain on which many of Israel's battles had been fought. There Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites, Judges chapter 4 and 5. There Gideon triumphed over the Midianites, Judges chapter 7. There Saul was slain in the battle with the Philistines, 1 Samuel 31 verse 8. There Ahaziah was slain by Jehu, 2 Kings 9.27. And there Josiah was slain in the invasion by the Egyptians, 2 Kings 23.29-30. Marvin Vincent says, Megiddo was in the plain of Esdraelon, which has been a chosen place for encampment in every contest carried out in Palestine from the days of Nebuchadnezzar unto the disastrous march of Napoleon Bonaparte from Egypt into Syria. Jews, Gentiles, Saracens, Christian Crusaders, and anti-Christian Frenchmen, Egyptians, Persians, Druids, Turks, and Arabs, warriors of every nation that is under heaven, have pitched their tents in the plains of Esdraelon, and have beheld the banners of their nation wet with the dews of Tabor and Hermon. There are several other geographical locations involved in this campaign. Number one. Uh, Joel chapter 3, verse 2 and 13 speaks of events taking place in the valley of Jehoshaphat, which seems to be an extended area east of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 39, 11 speaks of the valley of the passengers, which may refer to the same area as the valley of Jehoshaphat, inasmuch as that area was a well-traveled route going away from Jerusalem. Second, Isaiah 34 and 63 picture the Lord coming from Edom or Idumea, south of Jerusalem, when he returns from the judgment. Third, Jerusalem itself is seen as the center of conflict. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 2 through 11, and chapter 14, verse 2. <clears throat> Thus, the campaign is pictured as extending from the plains of Estrialon on the north, down through Jerusalem, extending out to the valley of Jehoshaphat on the east, and to Edom on the south. This wide area would cover the entire land of Palestine, and this campaign, with all its parts, would confirm what Ezekiel pictures when he says the invaders will, will cover the land. In Ezekiel 38, verse 9, and again in verse 16, this area would conform to the extent pictured by John in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20. End quote. So, uh, these plains of Esdraelon is the same as the Jezreel Valley uh, and also contains uh, the Kishon River and Mount Carmel. And talking about that, uh, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 18, I'm going to flip over there and read that too. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17, down through uh, verse 40. The plains of Esdraelon, where this is, this is talking about where the valley of Jehoshaphat and all that is. And what's going on here is you have Elijah and Ahab and a challenge. All right. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubled Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. 
Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred, which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came out unto all the people, and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. And all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, and put no fire under it. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning, even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or for adventure, he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was past. And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto the word, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bullock in pieces, and laid him on the wood, and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice, and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon, and slew them there. The brook Kishon is where this 
Jezreel Valley has the river Kishon. It grew a little. And of course, through the process of erosion, that's how that happens. So all these places are tied into the very exact same spot. Is that not amazing how God lined all this stuff up? Okay, so let's uh, do the last point here. Finish this up. I don't have much time. Uh, and even the last phrase there. Ah, I done lost my part. Place, not part. Lost my place. Uh, even unto the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. Even unto the horse's bridles by the space of 1,600 furlongs. Ah, trying to turn there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by today's measuring standards, we would see a blood flow about four feet deep and around 182 miles long. That's what the result of this wine press is going to be. This is what the result of the murder, not murder, but the destruction of this evil army is going to be in the Battle of Armageddon. When Christ comes in and they put them that those evil forces in that wine print, the valley's going to, the uh, the valley is going to be so full of blood that the way he measured it up to the horse's bridle, a thousand six hundred furlongs that that's four foot deep and one hundred and eighty two miles long. Now the re, the way we come up with that, one furlong is about six hundred feet. Five thousand two hundred eighty feet equal one mile. So sixteen. 100 furlongs equals 960,000 feet, which equals 181.81 miles. So just short of 182 miles. So is there a way to understand just how much blood we're talking about? Now, figuring the cubic volume necessary for this blood flow, there are 7.48 gallons in one cubic foot. The average human body, say, 150 to 180 pounds, contains about one and a half gallons of blood. Cubic feet is obtained by multiplying length times width times height. So we know the length and height as described for us as 960,000 feet long and four feet deep. But we do not know exactly how wide an area we are talking about. Some areas of this valley are 50 feet wide, so we can use this just as an average. So length, 960,000 feet, width, 50 feet, height, 4 feet. So you calculate that out and you equal one, it comes up to 192 million cubic feet. Now to find out how many gallons of blood it would take to fill this volume, you take the total cubic feet, 192 million, and multiply it times 7.48 which is the gallons of blood in one cubic foot. <laughs> We're getting big numbers here. So you come up to 1 billion, 436 million, 160,000 gallons. Now to determine how many humans we're talking about, it would take to get this much blood. Uh, you divide the total gallons, 1.4 billion, uh, by 1.5, which is the average gallon of blood per human body equals out to 957,440,000. Uh, 
So that's nearly 1 billion soldiers, not including horses killed. So this would equal the almost total annihilation of the nation of China, which is 1.4 billion, or even India, 1.3 billion. Now, in his paper, entitled New Prophetic Discoveries Concerning the End Time, of June 1981, Ernest Martin writes, and I quote, The Bible describes Christ and his holy angels as riding white horses, Revelation 19, verse 11 and 14. And since Revelation 14, verse 20 says that the blood from this battle will flow up to the horse's bridles for a distance of about 175 miles, it can be understood how the feet of riders on horses could be soaked with blood without their feet actually touching the ground. As a matter of fact, the valley of Revelation 14, 20, that is 1,600 furlongs in length, about 175 to 180 miles, could hardly be a small valley around Jerusalem or anywhere else in Palestine other than the Rift Valley to the east and south of Jerusalem. Even this reference in the book of Revelation helps to show that the region near the Dead Sea and southward is the only area which could be the Valley of Jehoshaphat, end quote. So, all of that argument just goes to point out that this Battle of Armageddon is going to be unlike anything that we have ever seen. I mean, not nothing comes even close. We've seen millions, maybe tens of millions destroyed. Uh, we've never reached the billion rank. So there it is. All right. Look at there. It's chapter 14 done. We're getting there. <laughs> so uh, once again, thank you for joining me. Uh, I hope you've learned something out of this. And hope you continue to listen, Brother Ron. Um I ask that you pray for me, pray for each other, uh, pray for our nation as a whole, and um, just lift each other up in prayer. What more can I say? So uh, hopefully you'll join me on the next podcast. We'll start chapter 15, uh, which is only eight verses long, so maybe we can uh, get through that in pretty quick, hopefully. Okay. All right. So once again, thanks for lifting and have a great day. God bless you.